You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Attorney General William Barr offered a combative defense of his independence from President Donald Trump and his role as Attorney General as he testified yesterday before a committee in the Democratic-controlled House. Over more than four hours of testimony, the Democrats pressed Barr. The exchanges over Barr's controversial decision to overrule his own prosecutors to reduce a recommended prison sentence for Trump ally Roger Stone were particularly combative. Here's Barr's exchange with Democratic Georgia Congressman Hank Johnson. You changed that recommendation. No, I direct, the night before, Trump. the night before, that is well, Monday I, night. I, I know your story, but I'm asking. Well, you. I'm telling my story. That's well, what I'm here to do. Well, I do. That's why I'm here. Well, I'm here to tell my story. Joining me is National Security Attorney Bradley Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. How would you describe Barr's testimony and the questioning by the Democrats and Republicans? Oh, the whole situation was a complete disastrous circus and nobody came out of this looking pretty good. Republicans ran irrelevant talking points, Jim Jordan, you know, particularly amongst them, trying to deflect from the situation. The Democrats looked somewhat petty with their constant reclaiming the time, you know, parliamentary procedure. And the attorney general dragged out answers, stalled, procrastinated, and constantly appeared to be unaware of factual details that everybody on the planet at this point seemingly already knew about situations in places like Portland or in Michigan back in the spring, in the contents of the president's tweets and comments on stuff such as the Roger Stone prosecution and the Michael Flynn prosecution. It was not what we tend to think of anymore as an actual oversight hearing, because it really wasn't an oversight hearing. It was a political circus, and it's rather disturbing that this is what it's come to. Let's talk about some of the different points. There were allegations that he basically abandoned the Justice Department's political independence to back President Trump. And one of the most controversial moves was overruling his own prosecutors to reduce a recommended prison sentence for Trump ally Roger Stone. How did he respond to that? Yeah, so it was kind of a mixed bag. I mean, one of the things that the attorney general raised in response was to say that, you know, this is a 66-year-old man, first-time offender, nonviolent offense, it's not a meat and potatoes kind of crime, trying to, you know, basically play the role of defense attorney for Roger Stone almost um, in trying to mitigate any real sense that there should have been a punishment. He then, you know, obviously sought to deflect from that by saying, I still thought it was a righteous prosecution and I thought some jail time was warranted. And that is what the judge ultimately granted before uh, the president commuted the sentence. But basically, the attorney general kind of raised some mitigating factors that on their own wouldn't usually in any other case of someone other than Roger Stone have been enough to warrant such a reduction in the rent sentencing recommendation from the Justice Department. And as the attorney general noted, this is the first time, as far as he's aware, that he's ever uh, otherwise, you know, intervened to overrule a sentencing recommendation at that stage. I thought that was the most telling part of his answer to the Roger Stone questions, was that he had never done this before, and the Democrats brought out that one point, but as for the rest of it, it didn't seem that they really brought out the egregiousness or the departure from standards of what he did. Yeah, well, and so this is where, you know, and listening to some of the answers given by the attorney general, he lives apparently in this world of blissful ignorance of everything else going on around him. 
that the rest of us see on a regular basis. He's seemingly unaware of the president's tweets and the president's public remarks on these things. He's unaware of the media attention on it. And he wants us to believe that all of these decisions he made, in particular to intervene in this context, was made in a complete vacuum and that nothing else you know, influenced his thinking on this and that he chose to intervene for the very first time in a matter like this with what just happened to be the president's longtime personal friend who was publicly commenting on the fact that he never broke, he never turned on the president. And seemingly Bill Barr was unaware of any of these quotes either. He just happened to be in this lovely little, you know, blissfully ignorant vacuum deciding to intervene. There weren't as many questions about the dropping of the prosecution of Michael Flynn. Yeah, I think part of the reason that may have not been pushed on as much uh, by the Democrats was simply for the fact that if I were Attorney General Barr and the question was posed to me, I would have largely deflected on the argument that this is a matter of ongoing litigation and I'm not going to comment. And that would have been somewhat consistent with past practices for Democrats and Republicans uh, serving as Attorney General and testifying before an oversight committee that because the matter was still the subject of ongoing litigation and that matter is uh, a subject on a, to an appeal right now to this full D.C. circuit that they can't comment because it would prejudice or otherwise undermine the Justice Department's position. That's certainly going to be something that I think in the end here after the election and once that particular litigation is dealt with, we'll get more details on as to what really went on here. I mean, that was a completely unprecedented maneuver for the Justice Department to come in and pull the prosecution after they'd already gotten the guilty plea based off a technicality about notes on when jurisdiction was and was not existing for the investigation. I've never seen that. The Justice Department's provided no evidence that they've ever done that before. doesn't mean they can't do it, but it reeked, just reeked of favoritism. Coming up next on Bloomberg Law, Barr's take on mail-in balloting and the presidential election. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. I've been talking to Brad Moss of Mark Zaid about Attorney General William Barr's testimony before the House Judiciary Committee. When he was questioned about the aggressive use of federal force in response to protests in Washington, D.C. and Portland, Oregon, he didn't seem to back down from his assertions that federal intervention was needed and they did everything correctly. Yeah, well, this is a very much Bill Barr's view on federal authority and particularly in law enforcement for decades. I mean, there's memos that have come out now from the late 80s, early 90s of how he wanted to deploy federal law enforcement when there were riots in the wake of the Rodney King incident, which you can all remember way back to the early 90s with that saga. So a lot of what is being pursued here is sort of his fever dream from decades ago that he finally has the ability to implement with a president who's willing to give him that latitude and a Department of Homeland Security that's run by acting leaders who have no real ability to countermand him. And so DHS has been turned into what it was never supposed to be. It is now the, you know, the equivalent of what we think of as an interior ministry in authoritarian countries where you have the federal law enforcement that comes in decked out like their military uniform as if they're operating in Kabul or Fallujah, and they're using military-style tactics to confront protesters. Have there been violent protesters? Absolutely. And I think everybody's agreed. If you engage in that violence, if you deface federal property, if you assault federal officers, you can be prosecuted and convicted for that. But too many times we've seen in these videos and this report that's come out of these federal law enforcement officers way getting over their skis, 
way going beyond the issue of trying to protect federal property or protect themselves, which they're entitled to do, and going after what are otherwise peaceful protesters who are gathering in large numbers, including, with, you know, you've got the wall of moms, you've got all these different individuals who are not engaging in violence. And that's the concern is that Bill Barr is using this opportunity to employ measures that otherwise would never have been permitted. He was questioned about whether he's talked with President Trump about the use of troops and whether that would happen in elections. He evaded the question, but he also indicated that there had been talk. Bill Barr is nothing if not a very crafty old school lawyer, and he knew how to kind of dodge and deflect around the question. I didn't necessarily take the answers he did provide as indicating or confirming that he had specifically discussed with the president in the context of the reelection fight, the idea of deploying troops in support of that idea in order to push that agenda. It doesn't mean he didn't. The answers he gave were vague enough that he could kind of maneuver around it. But I think we're seeing with, you know, not with the locations, I mean, we just got a new announcement that Operation Legend, which is the code, which is the operation name for this whole effort by federal law enforcement, is now getting deployed to three battleground states, Michigan, Ohio, and Wisconsin. It just so happens to be areas where there are high areas, high numbers of uh, liberals and Democrats who happen to be in those areas, and that's where these federal law enforcement getting deployed. Is there a legitimate reason for it? There might be in certain respects, but it's very interesting to note that this is where they're choosing to deploy their resources. Whether or not it's being done appropriately is something that's going to be scrutinized heavily in the coming months. An area that was of concern to Democrats and I think to a lot of people looking toward the elections is the fairness of the elections. He was asked about that and to justify his repeated warnings about the risks of mail-in balloting. Yeah, and this is somewhere where I wish he would really stick to his own lane, for lack of a better, you know, inside the Beltway phrase. This is not really his job. That's a job for the FEC and other entities in the U.S. government to oversee. It's not his job to be commenting on mail-in balloting procedures. And his answer was that he didn't have any actual evidence, you know, for example, that foreign governments were going to print off fake ballots and submit them. He just said, I have common sense. Well, unfortunately for us real lawyers, you need more than that. You need evidence. And he admits he has none. The president has admitted he has none. These are various paranoid theories they have in their mind that they're concerned about because from a demographic standpoint, they're aware that if mail-in balloting becomes far more expansive and extensive in this upcoming election, it is more likely to benefit Democrats who are less likely to vote oftentimes compared to Republicans, and that's not something they necessarily want to advocate for. Brad, he was asked about what would happen if there were disputed elections, and he kept saying, I will follow the law. Why didn't that answer satisfy the Democrats on the committee? Yeah, well, because it becomes a question of, but when he says follow the law, it's Bill Barr's view of what the law is, and Bill Barr's view of the law and the view of a lot of the rest of us doesn't necessarily always tend to align. It's the same kind of issue with receiving assistance from a foreign government. He hadn't been hawed around that issue, too, and before he finally said, no, they should not be accepting foreign assistance. So the way he's given this answer is kind of similar to how the president's given the answer, and to be very candid, I hate this question being posed to political candidates or to senior officials. Because we don't know what the election will look like. And so do we have any reason to believe that 
they will refuse that you know the president if he were to lose in a you know a landslide would refuse to concede no he'll leave he'll concede defeat in whatever way he chooses fit and he'll leave the white house in 2021 they're gonna play up this game though a little bit partially just because the president likes it from a media perspective he likes controversy in the news it's what he does but in, in the ultimate scheme of things i don't like the question itself because any candidate you know Joe Biden would give kind of a similar answer at points because you just don't know what it'll look like on election night or election week, whatever it can become at this point. And you can't commit that you'll accept whatever initially comes out because there are legal challenges you can bring. You mentioned his hesitation to say that a president shouldn't accept foreign help to get elected. And I found that confusing because that is out and out law. There is no question about that. It's not fuzzy. And he said, well, it depends on what kind of help. I don't understand why he didn't just say, of course not. Well, for one reason was most certainly is that he didn't want to brazenly contradict the president up front the way the FBI director had. We uh, all remember from our pre-COVID days, there was a infamous interview between the president and George Stephanopoulos over at ABC, and the, and the president said the FBI director was wrong to say that it would be improper to receive foreign assistance in the context of the election. The president made clear he'd welcome such information. He'd want to see it. So the attorney general, trying to maintain some manner of you know civility between himself and the president, didn't want to be quite as brazen as the FBI director, is my assumption there. But where he was hemming and hawing, I think, on the legal side is that it's unresolved what would qualify as assistance from a, from, a, from a criminal standpoint. And this was some of what the Mueller team struggled with. If you simply receive information, not money, is that going to be enough to violate campaign finance laws? There is no clear um, ruling or standard on that because it's never happened before in that context. So no one really knows for sure how the law would play out. I think that's where the Attorney General was kind of dancing around the edges. The Democrats question him about Trump's response to the coronavirus, which, you know, it doesn't seem to really be in the purview of the attorney general and the Justice Department. And he blamed President Obama, which is something that we heard from the White House. That's another point where you just question why he's even being asked that. Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a rather irrelevant question to have asked. And I thought his response was a rather political operative style answer, just relying on White House talking points. It doesn't matter how many times things have been debunked. I don't know why that question was asked because, again, if I had been the Attorney General and that question had been posed to me in that context, I would have largely deflected saying that's not my purview, that's the purview of DHS, that's the purview of CDC, and you know entities like that. DOJ is supporting them to the extent needed, but that's not really what we handle. But Bill Barr has been a longtime political operative. He was very clear on that when he came into this position again, which he had held decades earlier, already once before. And so he chose to pursue a political agenda response. I didn't think it was really befitting of his position, but that's what he chose to do. He was questioned about systemic racism in the police. That questioning was a little more tailored, and the Democrats seemed to do better in that area. Yeah, and I think that the Attorney General gave what I would characterize as a very uh, Trump party line response, which is to minimize any incidents like what happened with George Floyd as the result of a few bad apples and not reflective of a larger problem. 
And this becomes sort of the philosophical debate between the two parties here as to whether there is a larger issue at play or whether or not what we're seeing here is just uh, minor and isolated incidents. When this happens where there's, you know, police violence against someone like George Floyd, the attorney general will say, well, that's just a few bad apples. But when there are a few rioters amongst a largely peaceful protest crowd in support of something like Black Lives Matter, it's they're all violent extremists and arsonists and anarchists. They They have no problem painting with a broad brush when they feel it's most appropriate to them. And that was so my, what's been my issue with the White House's response on this and the attorney general um, serving as that, you know, ultimate spokesperson for the Justice Department. So finally, at the end of the hearing, Barr got a wrist bump from one of the Republican congressmen. Was Barr the winner here? I think if you have to truly declare a winner, I think you'd have to give Barr just a slight edge because. Democrats didn't really land any true knockout blows on him. He's the ultimate political inside fighter. He drew him to a draw. He looked petty. They looked petty. But he didn't need to, quote unquote, win. He just needed to get through it without imploding or without giving in too much. So did they get what they really needed out of him? No. And so for that reason, I say he wins. Thanks, Brad. That's Bradley Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.